0: We are in week two of 10, looking at our series, uh, The Way of Faith, um, hoping to explore all uh, what we see as the essential elements of the Christian faith, um, right, starting right at the beginning with the big fella, uh, God, and asking questions about God, but heading right through to uh, what is worship, what is it to be saved, can you be saved? what's the Holy Spirit doing, Um, why do we sing, why do we praise, why do we get baptized, all those kinds of things. And we want to uh, spend this time thinking about this sort of stuff because we want uh, to remind ourselves and to remind you uh, why we do this thing called church, uh, why we live these lives of faith. So we want to really sort of spend 10 weeks, and I guess we're thinking about heading back to church. Physically, we're thinking about coming back here, but we want to spend uh, these ten weeks just really uh, getting at the core of our faith and really just reminding ourselves: yes, yes, this is what it is. God, I be- you know I believe in a great God. No, I believe in Jesus, and the Holy Spirit really sh- shakes me and moves me, um and I want to worship Him uh, and I want to praise and I want to get to the bottom of His word and all those kinds of things. So we want to spend uh, ten weeks just uh, refreshing you and. Uh, Speaking into your lives, uh, those kinds of things. Hopefully, as well, it's pretty cool if you are not a Christian and you're sort of uh, working this stuff out and thinking this stuff through. It might be, it might be helpful to you, and it might um, be something for you to think about. The question that we've got this week is probably, yes, yeah, the biggest one. I think. I think. Uh, so last week I introduced the idea that there were tipping point reasons that we might not have faith in God and. Uh, There are probably other reasons that you could come up with, but the idea of the Big Bang at the beginning and this question we've got this week. How can you believe in an all-powerful good God when there's so much suffering? How can you believe in an all-powerful good God when there's so much suffering? So just to unpack that question a little bit, it's like you say you can't have... You can't have both ways. You can't have it both ways. He can't be, God, all-powerful and good because there is is so much suffering. He could possibly be all-powerful, but then he'd have to be bad. Or he could possibly be good, but then he wouldn't be all-powerful because there is so much suffering. And when we look around at that argument uh, that is made before us, and we think about... Uh, We think about, for example, the pandemic that is at this moment still sweeping across uh, the world and killing hundreds of thousands of people. And uh, when we think about that pandemic, we remember that that pandemic is taking the lives of the old and the vulnerable first. And it is a pandemic in which uh, the affluent people, the affluent nations, Seem to cope better. How can there be a good God when there is this happening in our world? Um, but often, it's not—at least to me, and I think to others—it's not these big things um, that become the real obstacles to getting to God. Actually, it's things that are much closer to home and much more uh, close to our personal experience. Um, and as I was thinking about as I was thinking about this, I was driving was um, dropping my kids off at school in featherston and there is a bit of a local celebrity that lives in featherston he's called ian clayton a bit of a local poet a bit of a hero of mine if you like if you like poetry if you like people from featherston he's he's your kind of guy and as i was as i was mulling this stuff over i remembered an incident i think it was about 10 years ago um he was out um taking his two twin kids on a canoeing um, trip. Maybe you'll remember this now as, as I start to unpack the story. And he took them out. And I can't really remember when. I think he's a Yorkshire one. I think it was somewhere in the Yorkshire Dales. And you know, it was a real stormy day and uh, the river was a nightmare. And um, his two twins went over. And he, as he retells the story, he said, and it's brutal. He says, I saved the one I could see. And the one he could see was Edward. And the one he couldn't see was his daughter, Billy who was rushed off and And as I can remember, I can remember thinking about this and, you know, idolizing this guy a little bit and stalling over it and just thinking, this just seems so pointless, such a waste. Those are the things I think that really tip us away from God. Things when you look at them and you go, what, what's the point of that? So that's the argument. How, how, How can we believe in God if these things happen? How can there be a good God? And how can he be in control if this stuff happens? Um, So let me give you the pat Christian response. Uh, And I'll sort of cough as I do it and I'll pause and I'll give you the pat Christian response. And in fact, what I'll do is I'll give you, let me give you the conversation. That will, that will go through your minds. Let me give you the conversation that rolls on between the Christian perspective and the atheist perspective. The Christian starts off by saying, well, you see, good God, he created the world to be perfect, but he made us to have free will. He made it so we could kind of do whatever we wanted. And there was an element of whatever we want would happen to us around the world. And not only that, not only did he create us perfect, but gave us free will, but there's also this other character called the devil who sort of flipped everything, made everything bad. That's, that's why it's not all, that's why they're suffering. We've got free will, and there's a bad guy called the devil. And the, so the Christian argument starts along, along those lines, and the atheist's response comes back Notice my facial expressions here. It comes back, really? Are you kidding? That, that's what you're gonna say to me. That's that's the storyline. Is that not a bit of a cop out? You're gonna go with the idea of a pantomime bad guy, makes makes it all go wrong, and you're gonna cop out behind the idea that it, this free will? Can God not can God not rein that in? Can God not sort that out if He's in control? Can He not can He not rein that in at all? You're going to go with pantomime bad guy, and you're going to go with free will. How is that? How can that all exist in the same in the same sphere? Is what you say. So, a lot of people have thought about this, but I think the, the at the top end of the thinkers is this guy. I've yet to read a book um, that explains this stuff better than this, and I'm going to read a quote, and my wife mentioned that my quotes were, she did, can you see her? She's somewhere behind there, you can see the shadow of her. She mentioned that my quotes were a little bit long, Uh, and this is no exception, but this will be uh, the best, the best argument, the best way for you to think about it, so uh, CS Lewis was thinking about this stuff, he was wrestling with this stuff, wrestling with this stuff actually, as far as I can figure out, in the face of grief in face of struggle. So he puts it like this, and it's a long quote, but stay with it. Christians then believe that an evil power has made himself for the pr- present, the prince of this world. And of course, that raises the problems. In this state of affairs, in accordance with God's will or not, if it is, he is a strange God, you will say. And if it is not, how can anything happen contrary to the will of a being with absolute power, that's the problem. But, a helpful but from Mr. Lewis, anyone who has been in authority knows how a thing can be in accordance with your will in one way and not in another. It may be quite sensible, so this is the example, this is the illustration that's that's to get our heads around it. It may be quite sensible for a mother to say to her children, I'm not going to go and make you tidy the schoolroom every night. You've got to learn to keep it tidy on your own. Then she goes up one night and finds the teddy bear and the ink and the French grammar all lying in the grate. This is against her will. She would prefer the children to be tidy. But on the other hand, it is her will which has left the children free to be untidy. The same thing arises in any regiment or trade union or school. You make a thing voluntary and then half the people do not do it. That is not what you willed, but your will has made it possible. It is probably the same in the universe. God created things which had free will. That means creatures which can go either wrong or right. Some people think that they can imagine a creature which was free but had no possibility of going wrong. I cannot. If a thing is free to be good, it is also free to be bad. And free will is what has made evil possible. Why then did God give them free will? Because free will, though it makes evil possible, is, only, is the, also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. A world of automata, of creatures that work like machines, would hardly be worth creating. The happiness which God designs for his higher creatures is the happiness of being freely, voluntarily united to him and to each other in an ecstasy of love and delight, compared with which the most rapturous love between a man and a woman on this earth is mere milk and water. And for that, they must be free. I'm sorry about the long quote, but it's there. It's possibly up there with the wisest little bits of information you'll hear from me. What is he saying though? What is he saying? He's saying, we know that it's possible for somebody to be in control for somebody to have a will, and for that will to be good. In fact, for that will to be perfect, they can hold a perfect ideal. And at the same time, that whole thing can appear a real mess. And this mess, experienced by the individual, the individual cannot see the grander point of what's happening just a girl in an untidy room, not really knowing what's supposed to be happening. And at the same time, this might be the only way for the perfect ideal to be met. See what C.S. Lewis is saying here? As, As earthlings, as human beings that get 70 odd years on this planet looking up to a cosmos that they don't understand and a God that's huge, just because just because we can't see the point of something doesn't mean that there isn't one. It doesn't disprove God. All of the, all of the philosophers uh, that went down that road, barking on and made that argument of, of quiet and down, of late, in fact, have changed their minds of late because they realize that the argument doesn't stack up. You can't have a God that is so great and so vast and yet assume to know everything that he's doing. Not only does it not bear out philosophically, uh, we know as well, I think, that it doesn't bear out in our own experience. We, we know this. Our lives are filled, um, filled with moments of difficulty, real diffi- difficulty. And we can look back on times in our lives that if we had to assess the whole meaning of our life within that short period of time, we would just say what is what is the point of this why am i ill why am i going through this bullying experience why am i going through this negative experience why am i going through this ill health why am i going through zits why am i going through whatever it is and yet at the same time we can look back on those moments of our lives and realize and countless people will say this those were the moments that defined me there were point To them, If I had to base the assessment of my whole of my life in that little moment, then I would assume it was all for nothing. But yet looking back, they've been hugely shaping towards me, hugely beneficial towards me. In fact, without them, I wouldn't be where I am today. There's tons of experiences of that. I wasn't looking for this example, but I fished around a little bit more at the Ian Clayton story um, just because it caught my interest. And I I didn't know this was coming, but he went on to write a book um, about the trauma of the canoe. And he put in it, ultimately, our Billy, so that's the name of the book that he wrote, is a love poem from Ian to his daughter. It's about a bonnie soul, a beautiful girl who had such kindness and interest in the world, he says. We were watching the news one day and there was a report about the Iraq war. And she said, what are they doing, daddy, dropping bombs? And I said, because it's a war, darling. And she said, but they seem to be poor people underneath these bombs. And I said, that's what happens in war. And she said, they need to start dropping medicine. What a thing for a seven year old to see. And that's a metaphor for this book, is what Ian Clayton says. I hadn't thought about this, but now that I've said it, I realize that I'm dropping medicine on people to make them better. This guy goes on to write this, but this, this, this book, this this like gut-wrenching horror story of an incident that I don't really want to bring to bear thinking about what it means to be a dad and yet at the same time thousands of people going to read the book and get a blessing from it. The point is we can't we cannot, as human beings, no matter how bad the suffering is, we can't rule out the fact there's a God because we just don't know what the purposes are. Tim Keller uh, said these words, if you have a God great enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering in the world, then you have at the same moment a God great enough to have a good reason for allowing it that you might not be able to understand. Hard though that is, we can't rule him out. C.S. Lewis went on to say, rather than rule God out as he dealt with his grief, it's more logical to think that it rules him in. Our outrage uh, to injustice, he goes on to say, suffering becomes a pointer to God. He says, what are the grounds at which the atheist is outraged at the suffering that exists in the world? What what, What are the reasons that the atheist can look to towards outrage at suffering? If... The standpoint of the atheist is that we are all here as a result of a cosmic accident. If if all that's happening in our existence is survival of the fittest, how can we possibly be outraged when something bad happens? What is the basis for that for that outrage? And you know, think of think of Think of the jungle. Think of how the survival of the fittest actually looks in reality. Think about that. Think about, you can't watch any hour-long BBC wildlife drama without one animal seeing another animal walk past and think, I'm going to eat that. And he jumps on it, eats eats the animal. The lion jumps on the antelope, whatever whatever else it is, gobbles it up to death. The other antelopes just all walk away. Why do they walk away? Because It's the survival of the fittest. And yet, that is not how any of us human beings feel. We don't reason it like that at all. We don't look back at tragedy and suffering and go, oh, that's just the way that it is. We don't reason it like that at all. We are outraged in our hearts. Why are we outraged in our hearts if all that we can look back on is the survival of the fittest? Why are we outraged by this? We are outraged because in our hearts, there's something way bigger, I think, is the argument driving things. We can't let, we the suffering, if anything, the suffering that breaks our hearts, if anything, points towards the fact that we were made for something bigger and something better. And there is a sense of justice that we're just not quite hitting at the moment. So there lie, um, and I should say this at the start, if, if you're a Christian, at the start, in the middle, if you're a Christian and you encounter somebody that's suffering, don't tell them that stuff. These are the arguments, I said last week, these are the arguments that I hope to turn your head a little. I hope that just to cause you to think and have more faith towards God. If you come from a position of, of not having a faith, that's, that's the point. The next little bit maybe is what you should think about if you, would, if you meet somebody who's actually suffering. What does the Bible say about suffering? So I wonder if we could just have a little look at that text again. Uh, That's probably going to be the text that we're going to look at for the next couple of weeks. Mark chapter one, uh, verse one to 11. So, Mark chapter, it it should be, I should say, what does the Bible say about suffering? It should be, it should be no surprise to us if we've read the Bible that, that we suffer. Core Bible messages are: God is real. God's here. Right the way through the Bible, God's here. But also, suffering's a reality for people that exist. Those and and those two twin things come together. It should be no. We shouldn't. We shouldn't experience suffering and go, well, um, this can't be coexistent with God. The Bible never ever. If the Bible's the book that proves God, the Bible never ever lets us away with that. It starts right from the get go. Genesis, it says Genesis. Two, there's a curse on people. The sin has brought suffering. The sin has brought struggle. And then you dot your way through the Old Testament and you read about God's, um, God's holy people. God's holy people, God's set-apart people, God's chosen people. Pretty much nothing but suffering. Uh, and then you read through the wisdom books that tells them how to live. Books like Job or books like the Psalms or books like Proverbs, littered with with stories of suffering. The Psalms has got more songs of suffering than it's got songs of joy and praise. And then you get to the New Testament and then you get to the stories of Jesus coming and his church and the new hope that comes with that. And it's still, man, it still reads like somewhere you don't want to be. It's still it's still suffering. There should be no surprise for us. But all the way through these stories of suffering are stories of Clinging to God, our stories of learning, our stories of yeah, hope in God. But the Bible doesn't just leave us there; it doesn't leave us dangling with. There is suffering; it takes us somewhere else. Check out this text, and you read it on the one sense. You come to it on the one sense, and you think, "Yes, yeah, the start of the Gospel of Mark." And it's just an introduction to the characters. There's no great things going on here. As I said last week, this is one of those passages in the Bible that makes sense of, of the whole book. It sort of pulls it all together, or it reaches out and grabs right back to the beginning of the story and shoots out right back to the end of the story. Jesus sees John on the River Jordan. John is baptizing people. And Jesus is about to get into the water. That's what's going to happen. What's going on? The water. Two things um, that you might think of when when you think of the water. First thing, anyone anyone from ancient times, what is chaos? It's madness in there. What's going on in there is stuff that basically we don't understand. That's one thing. Hold that, but hold it a little bit loosely. But the second thing that's going on is that this. This to the people of Israel represents all that they know, water, of of the way that God has dealt with his people, the way that God has judged his people, and the way that they have sort of suffered under his hand. So you can think about any one of a number of stories. You can think back to Noah and the flood that comes and judges the people, or you can think back to uh, the people that fled Egypt and uh, the red sea that comes crashing in in god's judgment and we see in this moment jesus getting into the water now up until this point in the bible story the only people that were getting baptized were the pagan people to to us just the people who weren't jewish the people that were coming around to faith in god were being baptized it was it was either baptism or circumcision and i know I know which one I would choose, and that's what was happening. Um, John was there at the Jordan, and he was baptizing people into the Christian faith, and Jesus comes along. Jesus strolls up, and John sees before him this perfect man, this guy who's done nothing wrong, and John knows who he is. He knows the story, and we know this little line that's coming up. John says to him, why do you come to me to be baptized? And underneath that sort of comment, I think what you can say is John's saying of all the people in the whole world that should be getting in that water, you're the last person that should be getting in that water. You're perfect and you're getting into that water. What is Jesus doing in this moment? Or what is God doing in this moment? Jesus gets into the water to be baptized. He, in that action, aligns himself at the start of his ministry with all of God's judgment on mankind throughout eternity, with all of the hardship, with all of the suffering, with all of the bad things that have happened because of the curse of sin. God writes himself into the story and Jesus is his head dipped below the waters and he aligns himself with mankind. He joins us in the story and he shares in our suffering. That's what God does. The first thing that God does, he shares in our suffering and he lives a life where we see that, uh, where he wakes up freezing cold. He's born as a baby um, in a manger and he's got no roof over him. He knows, he knows what it's like to be at the whim of the free will. Um, and he gets rejected and he gets beaten up. And he gets hungry and he cries. And he even reaches a point, like many of us reach, where he looks up to heaven and he says, Father, don't, don't put any more on me, yet not my will yours be done. He reaches a point where he completely imbibes what we do. But he doesn't just leave us there. This is the beauty and the point of this explanation about suffering. Because with suffering, when we look around and we see other people suffering and we see suffering that we can't explain, or we ourselves experience the suffering, there is always a point there's always a point where the words run out, the words of comfort run out, and they're either they're either false hope that you're throwing out there, or they're nothing at all. There comes a point when you can't share anymore the suffering, you can't support anymore. There comes a point if you are the sufferer, where you're completely on your own, except you're not. This is the point. We watch God in the man Jesus, share our sufferings. But we watch God in the man Jesus, not just leave us there suffering. We watch this man who shares our sufferings and we watch him go to a cross. We watch him be hung there and suffer for us. And then we watch him raised again and get out. And in that moment, we realize that there is hope for us in our suffering. In that moment, we realize that whatever is happening, whatever we think about God and suffering, whatever we think about that, we know that it's not because God doesn't love us and we have hope. That's the good news, I think. That's the kind of news that we want. Suffering is real and it happens, but God doesn't just leave us there. Why? And this is the end of the talk. We chat afterwards, but this is the end of the talk. Why do we talk about this? What, and I'm guessing there's there's people watching. Maybe don't have faith. I guess there's a lot of people watching who come to church every week, and maybe you're thinking, why, why, why are we, why are we spending time stalling over this? Maybe a little. Maybe you're a little bit like me. Um, when I came to faith, um, I grew up in a church that preached um, pretty robust. Uh, hellfire messages. I was I was a pretty scared kid when I when I went to church, and also I was probably a pretty anxious kid as well, just a little anxious, sort of twelve, thirteen year old kid when when I became a Christian. And I guess some of my prayer, some of my hopes with salvation was that God would just make everything alright. That was kind of my hope. Everything will be okay. And every, every now and again, that's kind of what I hope for my salvation. That's kind of what it means to me. It's what it means to us, I think. Some of the time, we hope that in God, He'll just make everything okay. And I think God, when I, when I prayed that sort of prayer, God just made everything okay. I think He took He took it, and He went, okay, but I can't leave you there. There's that verse that says, "You'll have to work out your salvation with fear and trembling." There's a sense in which I think God couldn't leave me there. Can't leave you there in that same spot where you're just thinking God is about making everything okay. That's not what salvation is. Salvation not not everything being rosy the whole of your life, but it is knowing that God's grip is sufficient for you. It's knowing that you will know God. You will know him in the heartache and the struggle and the suffering, and you will know that he can get you through this. Three things you got to know. Next week, it's Jesus. Three things you've got to know this week. Christianity doesn't rule out suffering. Christianity doesn't rule out suffering, uh, but it might rule it in. Suffering, though hard, won't rule out God. In fact, it probably rules him in. Whatever you think about God and suffering, whatever you think about that, wherever you're at, when you think about the cross, it can't mean that God doesn't love us.
1: Thanks for joining us again um, and staying with us just as we chat some of that through. There's still the opportunity to text in questions either by email at hello at xchurch.org.uk or through our Facebook or YouTube channel. I should also say that when we talk about the subject of suffering, it isn't an easy one. And if that's something that you would like to talk to me or Ash about, maybe on your own during the week or have a phone call about, um, then we would love um to be able to do that with you and we would uh, see that as a real privilege so please get in touch with us um, if uh, if we can help in any way you're not you're really not picking the easy ones ash
0: well i've we start we started with the with yeah the two hardest ones the things that might um cause people to stumble yeah um the two, the two trickiest ones so yeah that is the <laughs> Yeah, and it's not a, it's not a sermon that I particularly uh, want to give. It's not something I wanted my uh, to talk about, all my faith to experience. And I'm n- nervous doing it, if I if I'm really honest, because I I feel the heat of the of the sort of the magnitude of
1: magnitude the issue, percent. and
0: I I am aware that um, in in different stages of life, you hear a sermon like that, and you just can't, or you just can't hear it. You just go, I just can't.
1: That's too much. That's too.
0: Even though I would call myself a Christian, that's just too much
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, for me just now. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm nervous to do it, but I feel like, um, stand by, we've got to do it. I feel like we've got to do it. I feel like it's a really important thing. And I, I, I think one of the points of the talk was, I think, um, it comes round for us. If we don't, if we just live lives of faith that are just, um, everything's going to be grand. Uh, then at some point, ex, at some point down the line, we see something, uh, we see, you know, we'll watch. We're watching the news, and we'll see some kind of tragedy, and our hearts will break, and then we'll just go, "Can there really be a God?" And mm-hmm. if we've not, I think if we've not thought this stuff through, or if if we just think being saved means that everything's going to be fine, mm-hmm. then I think um I think that can be a real problem. That can be really tricky.
1: I think I understand, on one level, like that a little bit of suffering's good for me, and not to have it all my own way. But then there are times in life where. I know you can't quantify it, but the amount of suffering or the suffering that maybe you go through or actually even worse to see somebody you love go through suffering. Sometimes that feels, it just feels so big an amount of suffering that it almost feels unjust. Do you you know what I mean by that? It just feels like that can't be right. That, you know, that person's gone through enough or have I not gone through enough or do you know, it, it feels, it feels like that. And, I I hear what you're saying about hope in Jesus. How, what what does that bring to bear in moments of life when it's not like oh, you'll be all right. This is good for you. When it just feels like oh, is it is it not enough already? Yeah,
0: uh, yeah. I think so often you say oh, God's what God's listening to everything you say and He's watching and and all and all this stuff. But I I do think I do think ultimately when you get to that point when you're at that point that you've described, there is only Sometimes the hope that that Jesus brings—that's that's that's what I would say. I would say there isn't. I would say you get to the point. So I've seen Christian friends counsel um, other Christian friends through um, end-of-life experience, and I've seen the sort of the journey go through. Oh, let me hold your hand. Let me talk to you about this. Let me read you a psalm. Let me do this. But ultimately, um, ultimately, that person faces that on their own at some point, and.
1: Okay. when you, you can be hugely isolated when other.
0: you get to that point i think the only hope the only hope that i can throw anybody's way is i can't say oh well, tomorrow you might feel better or this might happen i can only say in christ god we can see that god loves us and in christ there is hope and that's all that's all that i've that's got and mean. and and the other thing i would say is that's better than anything else i can see that's out there if there's something else that you've seen that offers more hope than that then text me
1: um, yeah, you heard it, your friend. Um The other thing that I was going to just...
0: That threw you, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: It. But explore with, that, with you a, a little bit more. You talked about how coming to God does not alleviate suffering and doesn't make life rosy. But for somebody who... It
0: doesn't guarantee. It doesn't guarantee, doesn't guarantee that, a rosy life.
1: Um, for somebody who's maybe uh, struggling with that overwhelming nature of sorrow, does Jesus not say... You know, come to me, and I'll give you rest. Is that a contradiction? What do you think about? What do you think Well, I think that?
0: you'd be probably be asking what Jesus you'd say to Jesus. What do you mean by rest? What, what would you? What do you mean by that? So you'd probably look at that word, rest. And I think even within that, you'd say that that's all about just handing everything over to God. And that isn't in and of itself a rest. But I don't necessarily think that it. He was getting. I don't think he was making the point that. Well, you probably you'll get an, uh, you have a nice holiday, and you'll have this, that, and the other. I think he was saying you can have a deep rooted rest in knowing your Creator. and then come to me, and you will know God. And in knowing God, you know that that will be enough for you. Mm-hmm. The Story that um, Tim Keller was telling, he was describing the story of how John the Baptist was assured, and John the Baptist is about to get his head chopped off, and he says, he sends his disciples out of Jesus, and he says, "Are you the one?" and when he when he gets the message back that he was the one it wasn't like all right great i don't have to get my head chopped off now it's like well then any you can throw anything at me that you want because i know that this person is the one and that's enough it's enough for him
1: that that's tough though isn't it in the in the throes of life it's and-
0: tough because my prayer and i I've, and this is a, it's a really hard sermon to preach because mostly i um it was preached to me because mostly my well not most oh yeah often, often yes yeah. <laughs> but maybe yeah mostly my prayers are please make this all right god mm-hmm. please make this all right please let it be that
1: help me i'm struggling
0: help me help me i can't deal with this and just make this easier often are at the root of of my prayers and i th- and i would say like legitimate prayers and i would say them. and i'd say god answers yeah. them as well but there is still suffering um and the best way to overcome it is in jesus i think
1: Good. Thanks for your uh, answers on that, Ash. Um, like I say, please do get in touch with us. This is not something that we think we have all sewn up, and uh, but we want to talk to you about this, and we want to offer you hope in Jesus. And uh, yeah, please get in touch if we can. Um, I'm just going to pray now, and then uh, we'll, we'll we'll catch you soon. Uh, Father, we just want to close by bringing coming to you again and just um, asking that your spirit would speak to our hearts um, wherever we are and um, that hope in Jesus would be real in our lives and would be the thing that sustains us and, and keeps us going. And so this is our prayer. We ask you to hear it and answer it. We know that you are a good God and a loving Father who delights to answer these prayers and so we bring them to you in jesus name amen have a good week guys Uh, and thanks for joining us see you soon